I'm Chris Holt, Chief Executive of CHC Global, and welcome to the first of a three-part special in our series of Malicious Bites podcasts. Vegan Murray OBE is a campaigner and the driving force behind the Protect Duty, one of the most significant pieces of legislation that will impact public safety and security in the United Kingdom, making it a legal requirement for owners and operators of public spaces to be prepared for a terrorist attack. In 2017, Vegan's son Martin Hett was one of 22 people killed in the devastating Manchester Arena terrorist attack, and since then, Fegan has been tirelessly campaigning to make a change to our legislation through the Protect Duty, or as it's also known, Martin's Law. In the summer of 2022, I accompanied Fegan Murray on a visit to Washington, D.C., along with Paul Jeffrey from the Perimeter Security Suppliers Association. During our time in the USA, we took the opportunity with our partners at the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START, and the US Security Industry Association, SEER, to invite a small audience to meet with Fegan, giving them the opportunity to ask their own questions. This is the first of three recordings of that session and covers the question and answers between Fegan and START's Director and Professor of Practice, Bill Brenneff. Bill starts by asking Fegan specifically about her focus on human factors and public perception in her thesis and campaigning work. Some of the topics discussed here involve bereavement, and there is a frank discussion about terrorist violence and how it impacts people and families. I hope you enjoy this exchange between two hugely well-informed individuals, which I think provides some fascinating insights. I mean, to me, protecting the public is the most important thing, but attitudes are really what need what need to change because um you know it take take the school shooting this week such a sad thing but people have seen so many school shootings and people become numb to oh another attack another school shooting another knife attack in the uk we, we have the knife attacks another young person died of a knife attack in london these sort of things, they become sort of people forget that there's real tragedy mm-hmm. unfolding for people. And, and therefore, you need to focus on changing the public's perception of that. Because, you know, somebody once said to me, our oh, terrorist attacks are so rare, it's highly unlikely that any most people will be caught up in one. But I did. I did. It happened to me, you know, so actually you can't say that to me. Mm-hmm. Um we we are all at danger because attack methodologies have changed. Therefore, they're simplified. Therefore, you never know whether the person standing next to you will not just pull a knife out or ram you with their car. You know, simple as that. So um, I think that the mindset of, of the general public has to change, but also of the industry. I've heard individuals in, in our Department of Defense talking about the, the 21st century security environment. And, and one one individual said something that I thought was so, so insightful. He said the 20th century governments was about control. We control our borders. We control mm-hmm. the industry. We control um, uh, uh, terrain if, you know, in, in the military scenario. The 21st century, however, is about influence. It's about influencing people's behavior uh, and that we have to get better at influencing individual level and community level, societal level behaviors if we're going to actually address the kinds of threats that are, are harming our society. And so I, I, I really think that's an important insight from your work. So thank you for that. You also discussed the challenges associated with lone actors, which you described to be either individuals acting alone or individuals acting in small groups, but separate from organizational command and control. Mm -hmm. 
And because of that separation from organizational command and control, there are fewer points of potential interdiction for traditional law enforcement tools. But there may still be moments for non-criminal justice interventions, right, for family or friends to, to see something and be aware that they need to take action. Uh, because these individuals, while they might act alone violently, they're still embedded in social networks. They're, they're still surrounded by people who, who, who have intimate knowledge of them. When we look at start data, in the United States at least, we, we know that violent domestic plots, and these are domestic plots, domestic terrorism plots that are intended to be violent, they succeed over 60% of the time. It's a shocking number. It's a shocking number, right? But our constitutional protections prevent law enforcement from conducting criminal justice interventions uh, if someone is doing something that is constitutionally protected. Uh, and so oftentimes, law, traditional counterterrorism law enforcement tools, they, they are left to react after something bad has already happened, unless there's some other criminal predicate that they can use to do an intervention. Freedom of speech, freedom of, of association, these things often provide cover and concealment for mobilization to violence. When we look at international terrorist plots, they succeed 24% of the time. So less, lesser success rate, but still a significant success rate. The difference is that we have more aggressive laws, legal frameworks that allow us to do disruptions for an international terrorist attack earlier than for a domestic terrorist attack. So even with our incredible law enforcement community, there are these constraints. Um, and therefore, there is a role for prevent-type strategies, right? So not protect, but prevent-type strategies. In the United States, we talk, to, talk about that as CVE or PVE or terrorism prevention. And I, I wanted, wanted to know if you had any insights based on your dealings with government over the last several years and, and the, the, the public consultancy, what role you think there are for preventative strategies. Yesterday, you mentioned engaging with school children. And if you could elaborate on that, I think the audience would be... I'm a big uh, advocate of prevent. Surely, I mean, it's logical, isn't it? Prevention has to be better than cure. So um, the year after Martin, that it, in fact, it was the day after the first anniversary because the run-up to these anniversaries is really the whole of May is really uncomfortable. And as soon as the anniversary is over, I feel I can breathe again for another year. Um, but after the first anniversary, I remember coming downstairs and saying to my husband, the anniversary is done now. I need to go to schools. I need to talk to young people. And the reason I did that, decided that, is because the terrorist who did the arena attack was only 22 years old. And that's so young. I had, ki you know, kids younger than that, but kids older than him. And, and I felt, surely he is not, he wasn't born a terrorist. Something happened to turn him into a terrorist. No baby is born as a terrorist. These people are created to become bad by somebody else. So um, I figured that um, I need to speak to young people to warn them. And obviously I did some research and realized that there's a lot of um, radicalization that happens online. And uh, in fact, the way the UK prevent scheme happened was because of an aut autistic young man. Uh, I always forget his name. Is it Riley is the surname. Yeah. Is it My Michael Riley or something? Anyway, a, a chap, a young chap called with the surname Riley. He um, went online. Mum was at home, single parent household. Mum was at home. He was autistic. And he got talking to two people from abroad who gradually... Um, radicalized him and told him how to make a bomb. He then took this homemade bomb to a uh, restaurant full of people, 
full of people and he went to the loo to try and test it out and it exploded unfortunately um, but because he did it faultily he didn't do it a good job of, of putting it together um, it, it hurt him physically rather than cause more damage to others and he subsequently got arrested and he killed himself in prison a couple of years after being arrested but that is the first time the UK government realized that actually people get radicalized we need to put a prevention program together and that's how prevent was born really um, but prevent for me is really important because i go to schools now and because i feel prevention is the sensible thing to do and talk to young people about okay this is you know i always especially after the pandemic i always say to the children Terrorist recruiters did not use the pandemic to bake banana bread or do jigsaws or take up a new hobby. They rubbed their hands together in glee because they had a ready-made audience of hundreds of thousands of people, adults and particularly young people. And I say to them, look, this is the methods they use. These are the sort of things they say to you. These are the platforms they operate on. These are the things they might talk to you about that have nothing to terrorism, to do with terrorism. But it is an, a grooming method they use. They get friendly with you. They get, and then eventually they'll find a chink in your armor, and that's what they'll use against you. And that's where they then start the proper radicalization and brainwashing thing. And I also say to them, okay, this is how you can recognize signs in yourself or others, and this is how you can get help, access help and support. And and to me, that is, uh, I can't measure the success, but I do know I've seen nearly 19,000 children now. Uh, it would have been more had I not been at the inquiry and uh, had it not been for the pandemic. Um, but I'm continuing to go to schools because it's really important to reach young people so that they recognize the warning signs and, and recognize bad people. Um, so, you know, um, the, these, I mean, Daesh in 2014, they did a huge recruitment campaign to get lots of um, uh, computer people on board, IT people, game producers they hired, they hired marketing people. This is all to do with trying to radicalize young people. They produced a computer game that is similar to Call of Duty. They teach them how to kill Jewish people. They teach them how to kill Christians. Um, and then you've got the right-wing extremism that actually always copies what the others are doing. Lots of recruitment happens online and young people are the most vulnerable. So they're my audience. The exact approach you've described is something that uh, we would refer to as attitudinal inoculation. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, can you get to an audience years before they're exposed to a harm yeah. with a credible messenger, uh, raise awareness of a future harm, obviate it, meaning anticipate what it's going to look like, smell like, taste like, so that they, they'll recognize it when they see it, mm -hmm. and then allow the, the, the individual student in this case to recognize that that's an attempt to be manipulated by this outside actor. And what happens when we realize that we're being manipulated, if we realize it, we push back. We, it's called psychological reactance. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have a self-defense mechanism built in, and if we can spark that years before these individuals are exposed to a harm, they will recognize the manipulation when it happens to them and push back. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Kurt Braddock is a researcher at American University. He's, he's uh, written a lot about attitudinal inoculation and has tested it experimentally online. 
in in um, white supremacist um, with white supremacist content, um, and this is something that that I, I happen to run a veterans organization, or, or I'm a co-founder of a, veter- a veterans organization on the side, and we're actually looking at this for veterans who have been targeted for extremist recruitment and and misdismal information uh, as well. Um, and we actually have a, a representative here, Ryan Garfinkel, who is from Department of Homeland Security's CP3 office, and they focus on these kinds of preventative programs. Uh, and I, I really just couldn't underscore how important I think that is and what an incredible contribution I think that is, uh, because really, um, if we don't influence pop- large populations to be hostile towards this kind of extremism down the road, we're always trying to with broken things back together again after the fact. And that's, that's obviously much harder and more expensive. Martin's Law, as you envision it, is commendably, commendably pragmatic. Right? Um, who, to your mind, is best placed to be conducting the risk, threat, vulnerability assessments? Uh, who is best placed to evaluate those once they're put in place? Are, are those government functions? Are those private sector functions? Is, it, is, it, is there a blend? I think people need to work together. I think the, the best people who know what is needed in the security sector are the people who carry out the job. Um, People like Paul, people in other associations, people who do all the different industries. The government needs to work with them and and that's why the consultation was so important because when the consultation period of 18, was it 18 weeks? I think 18 weeks it was. Um, When this period happened, there were lots of discussions again on LinkedIn and a lot of the organizations got together with each other and and they didn't fill it in single. They filled it in as organizations. They got together with lots of Zoom calls and Teams calls and and formulated the answers together. And and I think that is important. The industry in the UK knew this consultation was happening, the feeling was energizing and that the government was likely to listen in the insurance industry who are involved in you know, terrorism, in the security industry, all kind of said, actually, we all we ought to make sure that we get our voice in here. Mm-hmm. So it was a really useful opportunity for the sector to communicate with government yeah. in a way that hasn't really happened for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that happened is a lot of industries and organisations have not waited. They're not waiting for the outcome. They're already implementing measures as best as they can. Yeah to comply with the law when it comes in. So that, that again, uh, this is that human-centered design baseline assumption that government really isn't best placed to define the problem. It's the individuals facing the challenge that have to really define and articulate what the problem is that we're trying to solve. And if we articulate the problem correctly, then solutions will obviously be much more likely to be taken up and much more effective if they are. Uh, in the U.S. government, uh, there, there is a process where... Uh, for certain solicitations before there's a government grant or contract that gets rolled out, there'll be a process where they request information, an RFI, request for information, where the industry or the community gets to say, before you release that yeah. solicitation, here's what you need to know about the problem as we see it. And I think the more we can um, uh, make those kinds of uh, process changes to, to get that input, the, the better. Uh, so my last question, so be thinking of your questions now, please. So my last question um, and it's a more personal one. Uh, I, I was really struck by your reflections on how the authorities engaged with you and your husband after Martin's death. Mm-hmm. At the morgue, uh, at the arena, uh, as well as your comments about your own um, resilience as a therapist. Can you please speak to the relative important, uh, excuse me, can you please speak to the relative importance of victims' services, an often overlooked topic 
uh, and really just help us understand as an audience how we can improve the ability to to engage with victims and families after an incident occurs. Yeah, so I am a, a member of Survivors Against Terror that Brendan Cox, whose yeah. wife was killed yeah. by a right-wing extremist, he fought, he set this up. And as a um, an organization, we are trying to set up a, a survivor's charter or a victim's charter mm-hmm. so that people who have been uh, affected by uh, a terrorist attack, whether they are bereaved or injured, that they have um, access to mental health services within at the latest six weeks. Um, they need to be assessed within three weeks and uh, start, uh, start to have therapy within six weeks, that they have protection from the media. The media was a big, big issue when, when you are involved in a terrorist attack. attack. You very often become a, a public uh, um Property, because, um, I mean, in my case, my husband and I, the day after the attack, it happened in the evening, the morning after, there was a message on television that said, if you need uh, support and advice and information, please go to the Etihad, which was the emergency provision center. Um, so off we went and we left my two young daughters at home, but I rang the older ones saying, can you stay with them? And they said, yeah, we'll sort childcare out and then we'll come and join them. They didn't get to our house till 11. At 10 o'clock, my 19-year-old was in the shower. My, my 16-year-old was watching the news and the doorbell went and she thought it's the postman. And it was a journalist, a young woman, saying to my 16-year-old daughter, um, oh, um, sorry for your loss. What was your brother like? Do you want to tell me? So I, as a parent, should have had that task to tell my daughter that her brother died, not a journalist. And um, there were journalists putting in hospital where all the uh, injured people were, pretending to be doctors, handing a tin of biscuits to nurses with 200, sorry, 2,000 pound sellotape underneath the tin so that they get information. It was also sorts of stuff. So media intrusion was a big, big problem. So we're trying to deal with that so that the, the media are regulated to do to deal with victims of terrorism. Um, they are looking at compensation. All of those things just don't happen as a matter of fact. And we did some, did some research uh, across other countries and found that Britain is one of the worst ones mm-hmm. to provide that support. So we're trying to change that very actively because mm. that's important academically or intellectually, when we think about the the purpose of, of terrorism as a tactic, it's not just about the violence. It's about the psychological and political impacts mm. on targets beyond the physical target of the attack. That's the essential nature of terrorism. And I think we, as type A security professionals, often fixate on stopping the next attack, when in reality, perhaps the most important service we can be providing is blunting the psychological and the political uh, outcome of, of attacks when they do happen, right? That's the essential nature of terrorism. But it's very hard to allocate resources to those things when we feel like, well, we, if we just allocate more resources to the, the pointy end of counterterrorism, we'll stop the next attack. And I think your your testimony provides a lot of insight into the importance of a much more holistic approach to, to this issue. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, in an attack, you're in complete free fall you're completely lost and you're completely broken, not destroyed, but broken. So any support families can get is is absolutely vital.